the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. Well, well, we had a long evening on Tuesday night uh, with the election returns. The recall election show with Andrea Kay was a lot of fun, and we had some great guests. We'll get to all that. We'll break it down for you. I'll give you my take of what you need to know coming out of Recall 2021, but... We also will have some great guests later on. We'll talk with Martin Dugard. Martin Dugard is the author of an upcoming book, Taking Paris. And he himself is an accomplished uh, writer and author, uh, sold a lot of books, history books. He did the killing books with Bill O'Reilly, killing Lincoln, killing Patton. uh, And he's a very talented writer. We'll talk with him about Taking Paris. Then we'll also talk with Ronald Kessler, who's written a bunch of books on... um, the uh, on the White House and the Secret Service. He's been a real sort of uh, journalist and uh, historian, a journalistic historian. We'll also talk to him about this uh, Woodward book and see what he thinks. But first, let's talk about what you need to know on this recall, okay? What you need to know on the recall. Recall 2021. I want to give you a couple of thoughts, a couple of bullet points to take away. Uh, the first one is this. The Democrats took this very seriously. Now, up to about two months ago, I'm not sure that anybody really thought they were taking it seriously. They took it seriously. They decided that this was not just a referendum on Gavin Newsom and might lose the governorship, which is a very, 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 very important position. I'll tell you why in a second. But they also knew it would slow the agenda of the left. And so they spent hundreds of millions of dollars. They brought out all the big guns, AOC, Obama, uh, and they got the base motivated and they turned them out. They made sure the election rules were loosey-goosey and they turned them out. Now, one of the reasons why this is so important to understand is that they needed to win for the agenda. But they also need, you, you have to understand, the governorships are so important for fundraising and for controlling uh, the relationship of the donor and corporate class to the party. When you have the governor of California call you and you're a Wall Street big firm or you're a manufacturing company or you're a big tech, you're listening differently than when it's a candidate, just some guy running for office. Because that, that, that governor has a lot of influence on what happens in your life. So first, the Democrats took it seriously. They took it very seriously. Number two, the Republican Party was not organized to, for a recall. Now, it's hard to do a recall. It's not a normal election. You've got 46 candidates in this case. I think 45 were, uh, were Republican. <laughs> Excuse me. Early on, it was there was a bunch of people that were, I would say, mainstream Republican or party members in good standing, you know, had run for office and all. And then Larry Elder got in late, obviously uh, took all the oxygen out of the room. So the, the Republican Party in California is kind of anemic anyway. It's tough to be in the minority like they are to not have much of a leadership role. So it's kind of weak. And that showed. That showed in terms of the ground game. That showed in terms of the ground game. So, the, you know, the first thing is Dems took it seriously. GOP in California is weak. I mean, I think you have to describe it that way. Number three, Larry Elder was really good. He was really good as a candidate. He looked, sounded, 
you know, uh, he looked differently, sounded differently, was communicating well. It was, um, he was a very impressive, the, the Larry Elder is a, is an influencer now in a category that he wasn't six weeks ago. On the flip side, Elder is stronger and so is Gavin Newsom. And so is Gavin Newsom. If they, you know, if you strike the king, they say, if you're going to strike the king, you better take him out. They try to take out the governor. Now he survived. He was saying, you know, it's almost like Scott Walker. After they tried to recall Scott Walker and they made him the number one target, he kept winning. He got stronger and stronger. Now, it turns out he wasn't a very good presidential candidate, but he was strong. He was tough. He was a fighter. That's what you're seeing with Gavin Newsom. I don't know what his future is, but I say he's a front runner for the next presidential election, 2024 or 2028. Either one, I think he's a front runner. He can raise the money. He's got the profile. So Larry Elder emerges as a bigger star, and so does Gavin Newsom. Both those things are true. All right, the last thing I will say on this, and this is the one that's tougher, is the nationalizing the election, which happened here, and it happened because the Democrats designed it thus. It didn't make it. They, they nationalized it by saying elders like Trump and they didn't run away from the COVID health freedom stuff, that they're bullies about it. And the Republicans have to come up with a better answer for how they're for uh, health, but they're not for imposing all this stuff on, on us and we the people. It's a challenge. What happened in this case is they nationalized the election. Everything's about Trump. Think about it. The news is all about Trump again. There's a Trump book. There's a, you know, Trump uh, uh, was, a, there's a Trump, new Trump Woodward book. There's a, there, the Trump was the center of the recall. I mean, they love having Trump. The, and then the media loves it because they love the attention. They love to get people agitated. So it, it's, uh, but on this COVID question, uh, the pandemic, the Wuhan flu, the Wuhan virus, I don't think the Republicans have a, have a really clear answer for what they're up to because far too many people have been made afraid. They've been made afraid by big tech, big media, and big government. And again, it doesn't matter how we got here. It matters that we're here. It doesn't matter why people are scared. And if they were lied to, which they were in large part, it matters that they are scared. And what do we do about it? And how do we change the equation? How do we make things better? It's a real challenge. I, I, I actually think if anybody should have been punished for his uh, conduct on COVID, it was Gavin Newsom. It, he did not. He does not look like he paid a big price. And that's got to worry you as you figure out what that means. Okay, now, and, and maybe I'll do one more thing. Uh, 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 one more thing on that is that the, uh, the, the last point. So I got one, two, three, four, five points. Okay, so five points. And the fifth point, here it is. The 2022 election, we just saw a preview. What's the preview? Hyper-focus on Trump, make him the issue. Hyper-focus on an issue that undercuts traditional voters. In this case, I think a lot of seniors stuck with Newsom over Larry Elder, I think. But more importantly, get out your rabid base. And so what you saw the Democrats do, say, I, I, in 2022, the, the playbook that they just ran for 2022, the playbook is what? Get out the base, right? Get out the base. That was what Obama was there for. Keep the election rules loose. Keep the election rules loose, right? And loosey-goosey is better. And three, make it about Trump, right? And those all relate together. Get out the base is, is a Trump thing too. But, you know, that, that's what they did. And I got to tell you, 
If you look at 2022, or maybe one more factor on there, is when you get out the base, uh, uh, keep the election rules and, and make it about Trump, one more f- overarching piece of that is get lots of money. Raise and spend a fortune, which the Democrats love doing. As a 2020 strategy, that's, that was the playbook they just ran. That's going to be tough to beat. People that think that somehow the Republicans are going to win the House walking away, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it after the numbers I'm seeing last night. And, uh, and I will tell you one thing I'll mention later on the program. The fact that the race is not that close in terms of the numbers that are being reported is frustrating because it will make it easier for everybody to demand that you not talk about voter fraud. They'll say, oh, don't talk about voter fraud. It wouldn't have made a difference. He, he, he knew someone by so much. It wouldn't have made a difference. Don't talk about voter fraud. Don't do that. Don't make that the focus. You don't want to do that. That's what they're going to do to us. And so, you know, what I've said, I did an interview on a, a, a radio show out in Champaign-Urbana, and I said the following thing. What you need to know is this. Nine months ago, we had an election where the rules were loosey-goosey. Everything was upside down. There was lots of irregularities, and we were forced. We, there was no way to audit the machines. There was no way to audit the system. Nine months later in California, we did the same thing again. And we're being told again, you have no right to ask for an election that's transparent, that is uh, able to be audited, and gives you confidence. You're not allowed to ask that. And if you do, you're a bigot, you're, a, uh, you're an insurrectionist, you're a, a big liar. What a shame on this country that we have just done another election, a big election, with an election system that it may have been done well, it may have been done fairly, I can't be sure, but I will tell you this, they didn't change any of the rules to make it more transparent, more accountable, more auditable, nothing. Didn't do any of that. So what you need to know is, that was a big day yesterday. The, the recall election, what was decided? What was decided on Tuesday? What was shown? The Democrats aren't going away. They're not lying down. They're not taking this easy. And they've got some plays to run. And they look like they're going to run them again. And it looks to me like the Republicans don't have any new plays to run. They're running the same old, same old. And it, it looks like that's how you lose. So that, that's what you need to know. All right, we've got to take a break. When we come back, Martin Dugard, the author of Taking Paris, we will take a break and be right back. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com to find out all of the, listen to this again and sign up for the Daily Wink. That's what you need to know. Be right back. Ed Martin. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Been looking forward to uh, talking to our next guest. He was on the program a few months ago. Martin Dugard is a New York Times bestselling author, number one New York Times bestselling author. He's written um, uh, the, the Killing books with Bill O'Reilly, but he's written his own books, a uh, number of books as a historian. Uh, excuse me. Go to martindugard.com. Find out more. But the reason I have him on is back when we had him on a few months ago, he was finishing up a book called Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights. And that book is now out as of September 7th, I think it was. So welcome back, Martin, to the program. Congratulations on the book. I've read most of it. My listeners know I try to read them. I've been about 85% of it. It's really interesting, compelling, and um, so congratulations. Hey, well, thanks very much. I really appreciate you having me back on. So first, before we get to the book, let me tell you, I, I know my listeners know I read the end and then I, be, I read the beginning and then the end and check things out. In this case, I, when, I read, when I read the end, I got to the part where you were acknowledging th- uh, things, your notes, not the acknowledgments, the notes. And you described how this book was written during COVID. And so you didn't, 
get to do all the travel to go do the book. So what I want to ask you is now you've written a lot of books and you've, um, you know, you've done a bunch of stuff in person and visited. Is this a new model? Can you write these kinds of books with the aid of technology? You know, I, I prefer not to. Uh, to be honest, you know, what uh-huh. I set out to do is I'm very passionate about history. So I set out to write a very fast-paced, detail-oriented history book, something that people, like, would turn the pages like a, like a Jason Bourne thriller. And then when COVID mm-hmm. started, I couldn't, I couldn't do the number one thing I do, which is travel to places, and, you know, smell the air and look at the lay of the land. But I think because, you know, so I ended up doing, like, Google Maps. I ended up uh, relying on old notes when I covered the Tour de France. But I think I mm-hmm. actually overcompensated with the detail because I took the deep dive down through archives and news, old newspapers and, you know, YouTube videos of life during the war. So, if anything, it taught me a brand new way to research, but I don't want to do it again. I really... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm happy, yeah, I'm happy with the way the book turned out, but uh, I'm actually right now uh, in London going to Paris tomorrow to see the places wow. I couldn't see while writing the book, just to kind of oh, oh. You know, back it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's that's, fa- that's great. Well, thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, Martin Dugard, again, the book is Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights, available everywhere you buy, uh, buy books. A question on the, on the form, uh, where you mentioned a little bit, the fast pace. I-, I was looking at the chapters. Many of the chapters are, you know, four pages, five pages, six pages. And, and that's... Um, uh, that's a style shift. I mean, that, it, you know, it used to be these history books. You read back and read like Barbara Tuckman, if that's how you say her name. Some of those chapters yeah. go on for 50 or 75 pages. That This is an intentional thing. Is is it a storytelling device? Is that really how it works for you? Well, it really is, because I think that history is, is just a great story. And history should not read. I mean, I love Barbara Tuckman. I love David McCulloch. I, I mean, I love, I love mm-hmm. history, period. But... If I read a history book and I start falling asleep reading a history book, I don't want to put right. the book down, but I, but I inevitably do because I can't keep my eyes open. So I <laughs> want to use the same techniques that, that a good thriller writer would do. So short chapters, uh, cliffhanger endings, a really vivid opening yep. to the next chapter, and then as much detail. You can't fake detail, so as much detail in between so that the reader, you know, and, and plus present tense, so the reader feels like they are there. I want to put people right in the moment right in the history gets to know these characters feel like they know them just as well as I feel like I know them. Yeah, it does. It works well. And I, I guess the funny thing is when you see it work, you say, why didn't everybody do that? It's just compelling. All right. Now, the, set the stage here. Set, set the stage here. It's May 1940, and Paris is is overrun by the Germans, which people didn't expect to happen as fast as it did. And, and the, here's the thing that people don't, I don't think Americans realize. It, it went from 1940 through 44, um, you have Paris occupied. And what I, I loved about this was all the main, not all, but many of the main characters of that period of history are sort of weaving in and out. You got FDR, you got De Gaulle, you got Patton. They're all weaving in and out. But what about this this group of um, sort of the resistance? I, I've heard about them more out in the countryside. I don't think I ever heard until this book about inside Paris. And how um, successful were they historically? Like some of the American, you know, the Jedbergs we've talked about, you know, two-thirds of them were executed. Were, were, was the resistance, um, by the time the war's over, are there many people left to tell the story firsthand, or is it mostly historical? Well, the thing I loved, that I fell in love with about the resistance is the fact that these were not militarily trained. These are not people who were given arms by uh, France or by America or Britain. These were 
regular citizens who were so patriotic and so full of fervor about the country that they rose up organically. They didn't know that other people were doing it. They did it on their own. And only later did they find out that there were chunks of them doing it. And the sad thing is, is a large percentage of them were captured, were sent east on a, a train for Auschwitz or some other death camp. A lot of them were shot by German firing squads. Um, and the, the, the funny thing is that because there were a lot of collaborators in Paris during the war, people who you know, should have been pro-France but instead were helping the Germans because it benefited their own cause, and they didn't know how the war was going right. to end up. But at the end of the war, these same people kind of claimed to have been part of the resistance and when they weren't. So that caused a lot of stuff at the end. But I'll tell you, I have nothing hmm. but admiration for the resistance and, and these people. And, you know, the big revelation for me not just wasn't just that they're regular people, but about 50-50, it was women. So we had huh. we had the female spies, we had female saboteurs. And again, these people had no training. They just were just uh, passionate about doing it right. Hmm. We're talking again with Martin Dugard. His book is Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights. Uh, lots in there. Hey, I want to ask you about the the the, the, the um, a chapter where you're describing um, the American envoy. His name, I, I pronounce it Bullet. Is it Bullet? It's spelled Bullet. Yeah, um, yeah. Who is, uh, yeah, and that, par- and that because what I was reminded of is uh, one of my favorite books in the last, I don't know, 10 years is by Alex Von Tosselman, a about um about it's called Indian Summer and it's about in August uh, of 1947 Dickie Montbotton who is the f- prominent uh, British uh, uh, ambassador I guess just kind of parties and, and and while they transfer all the British Empire gives up India and and the image here in this in this chapter you're in Paris France bombs are dropping on uh, on Paris and and they're still having a meal and and, and I guess the point is. Is that human nature? Like, is that what's happening everywhere? It feels like it's the that era where you know, don't interrupt the meal. Well, that may or may not be the bombing here. And Obama actually hits the hits the uh, hits the room they're in there, and then they decide, well, they will put off the meal. It's a kind of is that a different era, or is that just human nature? I mean, I love those stories. I th- you know what? I think it's a little bit of human nature because you know, Bill Bullitt was a really cool dude. I mean, I developed a huge um, affection for him it, because you know, when you write about people. You, you get to know them. You get to admire their strengths and their weaknesses. And he was—he was the real deal. So, uh, I'm sorry. I'm standing outside a restaurant and that's a motorcycle. No, that's okay. But, but here's the deal. <laughs> a- um, but the same—you know—the the Parisians never thought Paris was going to fall. Um, so they stayed way too long. Uh, they eventually fled in a panic just days before the Germans arrived. Well, guess what happened? That just happened in Kabul a few weeks ago. People waited too long. I was long. just going to ask you. They, yeah. they knew it was time to get out. Instead of getting out when they could have, they stuck around and they, um, they ultimately paid for it with this, this panic event that cost a lot of people their lives. Uh, Martin Dugard, the book is Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City Lights. Just have a minute or two left, and thank you for taking the time to be with us. Uh, it's a great book. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, when uh, Kabul fell, um, and in, in the case of Kabul falling, probably was predictable, uh, but Paris, as you write in the book, no one expected it to fall, and then it, no one expected it to be occupied for four years. It, it kind of wasn't imaginable, I guess, at the time. One of the problems it feels like today is people can't imagine, uh, I'm, I'm say Americans, Americans can't imagine things being being worse you know it, we, you know there's a range of what our imagination can fit into us and then you watch Kabul happen and you wonder uh, it, it does does am i wrong about that is, is the modern person sort of not having imagination about you know, i mean paris paris the city that was a dominant city for say it was just rolled and occupied for four years you know you know what people forget too is uh, the french army was one of the top armies in the world 
period at the time. They had more munitions, they had more men, they had better tanks, um, so nobody thought they were going to fall. The United States was the 17th most successful army in the world at the time, behind Romania. So nobody thought that you know, the French army would fold like they did. And I just think it just shows we can't take our democracy for granted. I just think that, you know, can you imagine an army advancing on New York or Chicago and how we'd behave? Mm-hmm. At first, you know, right. we, wouldn't, we wouldn't believe it was possible. But in, at the end, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen. But at the same time, that's what happened to Paris. It's the same, uh, it's the same catastrophic, catastrophic fate. Yeah, it is. A, it's a great book. So, uh, Martin Dugard, I'll, I will let you go. Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights, uh, anywhere you can buy books, it's available. And also his website, which is really interesting to read about his work and his writings, martindugard.com. Uh, thank you for the time, Martin. Keep writing and good luck in Paris. That'll be uh, fun for you to see those places you were writing about. And it's, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it very much. Okay, you're very welcome. All right, we'll take a break, everybody. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I'll put this up over on social media. Be right back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is an old friend. He's been on the program before. It's been too long. Ronald Kessler is an award-winning New York Times best-selling author. He was a journalist early in his career for decades and then uh, an author. Uh, books on the White House, Secret Service, FBI, uh, on uh, Palm Beach uh, Society, all kinds of things. He's a writer, is what uh, I would say. So welcome back, Ron. How are you? Very good. Good to be with you. So RonaldKessler.com is the website. Now, I want to ask you this one because it's, it's apropos this week. We got another Woodward book out. And, um, and you've written a books on White Houses, which means you have sources and you have to, you know, some of them are anonymous. But, you know, the Woodward books always have a certain um, flair that makes me shake my head and think, I don't know if I believe that. And, uh, and, and it feels like, you know, Stephanie Grisham, the former press aide to Melania, has they're floating her book. And some of that's been sort of uh, deemed uh, by at least the Trump people as not quite true. Uh, has this, has this, has this um, uh, tradition of books tell, uh, insider books gotten worse it feels like it's worse than it was in the past well that's certainly true but woodward is really accurate i sat next to him during watergate at the washington post i followed his career actually he was best man at my wedding and you know i i I don't like uh i didn't like his previous book on trump because it hardly ever mentioned one good thing that he ever did but when it comes to his revelations, over and over again, uh, people think it's crazy, they don't believe it, and then it turns out uh, that the information came from the person uh, who was, uh, uh, that the information was attributed to. Uh, in this case, you already see that Millie has, has uh, owned up to, to these conversations. Um, I, you know, you remember that um, issue about the bedside scene with Bill Casey, uh, yeah, 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 and everyone yeah. thought that was ridiculous. That was not true. Even you know Casey's uh, uh, wife at the time denied it. Said that Casey could not speak. And in my book, The CIA at War, I went into the fact that it, that it was all true. Number one, uh, Bill Gates, who was uh, his deputy, uh, told me that that Casey could speak. And I quoted the uh, the head of security at the CIA saying it is quite possible that Woodward got in, uh, and uh, hmm. uh, really uh, knocked down all the all the conspiracy theories about Woodward. Uh, so uh, hmm. yeah, it, it, but it certainly is fun to to see 
Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Ron Kessler and uh, himself, an author of many books, ronaldkessler.com. Um, Ron, uh, when people say, like they do now, that, oh, who's really in charge? Uh, they said that about Reagan. They said that about, uh, you know, uh, Clinton, that maybe Hillary was in charge. They said about everybody. W- with uh, with President Biden, it feels more real. Uh, is that am I overreading that because I'm not a fan of his policies or what's your feeling when people say, oh, you know, Biden's not in charge. It's Susan Rice. It's these other people. Is it any different than any other White House? You know, all the presidents have been in charge, and, and he is in charge. Uh, you see that uh, in Woodward's book, he, he says that uh, uh, Blinken and uh, uh, Milley uh, and, and Austin uh, all said that uh, the withdrawal should be much slower, and Biden overruled them. So that tells you everything. And, of course, uh, the the timeline that uh, Biden uh, imposed uh, in order to give a nice uh, speech on 9/11, uh, is is what drove the whole thing and and caused all these problems. But the biggest uh, lie that Biden has told is that we're still going to be able to have this so-called uh, uh, out of the country, uh, over the horizon uh, capability uh, to keep us safe. That is complete malarkey because we need CIA assets on the ground. Uh, who can report on plots? You can't find out about a plot by, you know, aiming some uh, drone from a thousand miles away. Um, but we're not going to be able to do that because we won't have an embassy. Won't, uh, it's much too dangerous to to infiltrate CIA so-called illegals into into Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And the second biggest lie that he told was uh, that um, the uh, it's no big deal. Uh, to withdraw from from Afghanistan because uh, terrorists are all over the world. Well, yeah, they are, but all over the world, countries uh, cooperate with us. Report uh, even even Russia reports uh, terrorist plots to us, and uh, in in almost every other country, the the local law enforcement and security forces uh, try to roll up these plots. Now, we have this this super uh, terrorist state in Afghanistan controlled by terrorists it's totally different mm-hmm. so so all of you know biden's uh, foundations uh for, for the whole for claiming that that he's still going to keep us safe are, are bogus and and what really worries me is the possibility of wmd uh, going back to 1998 bin laden said we want to develop wmd including nuclear and use it and that's exactly what Al-Qaeda was doing uh, when we went in uh, after 9-11. Uh, in my mm-hmm. book, The Secrets of the FBI, I quoted the FBI official in charge of uh, what they call the Directorate of uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction within the FBI, as saying that when we went in, the military found that uh, they were, in fact, working on chemical and biological uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and now... Uh, they'll be able to hire the top experts in the country in the in the world to ha- to help them develop these these uh, things. And even though the FBI has gotten much better at uncovering plots since 9/11, uh, if you have just one plot after another, uh, we're going to be in 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 for uh, a very bad time. 
We're talking again with Ron Kessler, and his website is ronaldkessler.com. You can see a lot of his writings there in his books. And, and I was referring when I was uh, looking to get you on the show, Ron, to your piece. It was over in Newsmax, uh, I think, um, I don't know, a few days ago. Uh, and, and it was and it referred to um, Joe Biden's history. People, you know, understanding how somebody gets to where they are in terms of positions. You know, he was a young senator as the Vietnam War is ending. And you go through this, um, how he... He was thinking uh, Afghanistan would be like Vietnam and it would drag on and there was no real uh, value to be there. I I guess I want to ask this. Can he change his mind? Because when I read your piece, it seems like you've laid out why he, you know, he was acting like this because of what he learned or thought he learned in Vietnam. And so he had to pull everybody out. But at various times in this, he just didn't seem like a leader who would adjust his uh, thinking. He just said, I'm right. Like, you know, as you know, Ron, a a U.S. senator is like a a mini king. You can't you can't make him go vote. You can't make him go attend things. You can't do anything. He's not going to get thrown out of the Senate by his colleagues. He probably isn't going to lose his election. Very few of them do. He may retire someday. So he's acting to me like a U.S. senator who goes to his hideaway office and says, I'm not going to do anything different. Can he change his mind? Do you see anything in this guy's makeup that will have him grow at 78 years old and, and adjust his mindset? Or are we are we going to have a guy who's decided uh, Afghanistan's not worth worrying about? We're out of there now. And as you point out, we're going to have trouble. Yeah. And and by the way, when, uh, speaking of his lies, he said Al-Qaeda is, is gone. Well, of course, the Pentagon immediately corrected that and said, no, Al-Qaeda is still in Afghanistan. Uh, look, the fact is he's stupid. You know, it's it, 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 there are smart <laughs> senators uh, and there's stupid senators, and, and he's just stupid. You know, he, he I quoted uh, Ted Kaufman, a, a longtime aide and associate, as saying that his thinking does go back to Vietnam. And as as we know, those of us who are old, the Vietnam War was founded on a lie, the domino theory, that, you know, that if, if North uh, if, if South Korea fell, then the rest of Southeast Asia would fall. Uh, that was all bogus. And, you know, I quoted a, a CIA memo at the time as, as saying that. But Johnson, you know, ignored all that, continued the war. Seventy, uh, fifty-eight thousand uh, soldiers died in the Afghani- Afghanistan situation. We've had two thousand five hundred soldiers die. Uh, there are 1.4 million uh, service members that we're paying for. What are they there for right. if it's not to protect us? Uh, and, and by the way, uh, during that same time period in, in Afghanistan, the, about the same number of police officers were killed in the line of duty. But nobody says, well, we should withdraw our police because, uh, of course, we have to defund the police movement. But uh, nobody says, right. you know, because they were killed, we should withdraw. Right. Right. Well, it's a very interesting piece. I'm glad you're right. I encourage you. Ron Kessler, ronaldkessler.com. Thank you, Ron, for uh, writing it and for coming on. We'll have you back on again. It's a very helpful uh, perspective. Thank you. I always appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. Okay. We'll take a break, everybody, and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative perspective since 1983, continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. And now, from the archives of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, here is Phyllis Schlafly. Familiarity with the Bible was once considered a hallmark of a good education. Today, however, it would be hard to even find a Bible in a public school. Just ask the Gideons of Burlington, North Carolina. According to the Times News of Burlington, 
Local students once received Bibles from the Gideons. That's the same group that puts Bibles in hotel rooms. But school officials no longer welcome the Gideons' contributions out of fear that this would allow the secularists to call it a state endorsement of religion. School officials already forbid employees from handing out any content with a religious focus. You might wonder why the Gideons don't hand out the Bibles themselves. The answer lies in a Fourth Circuit Court decision in which hand-wringing judges worried that children are too impressionable to see the difference between a teacher handing out Bibles and someone else distributing them. The Burlington, North Carolina Gideons are casualties in the left's war on religion, which has been waged with vigor in the public schools. In one of the earliest battles, the 1962 case called Engel versus Vitale, the Supreme Court banned prayer from public schools. Justice Potter Stewart wrote in his dissent that denying children the right to join in prayer is to deny them the opportunity of sharing in the spiritual heritage of our nation. You could say the same about keeping Bibles from school children. The Bible has been essential to thousands of years of Western religion, culture, and literature. What sense does it make to deny the Gideons a chance to distribute copies, paid for by private funds and passed out by volunteers? The truth is that the secularists are not going to stop until they completely remove all mention of religion from public schools. Not only prayer and Bibles, but even any mention of God will all become unacceptable if the seculars have their way. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Freedom of worship and the right to express our faith and read our Bibles is foundational to America. At phyllisschlafly.com, we promise to track mounting threats to the free exercise of religion and equip you to fight back. Your defense begins at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. You know, um, as we're talking about all these issues that are top of mind, uh, meaning there was a recall and General Milley and all these different things, um, a lot of things happen when you have allowed your government to become uh, the federal government to become so dominant in our lives. And uh, earlier on Wednesday, I was having lunch with uh, my friend uh, Joe Johnston, who wrote the book, The Decline of Nations. And he's just a wonderfully wise guy. And we were talking about this. How many things are going on? That we're not even paying attention to because why? Because the media and big tech and the government wants us to worry about COVID and masks and who's fighting over what and what's the vaccine rates. Meanwhile, back in the massive federal government that dominates all our lives, we have things like, you know, the, the, the welfare to work has been gutted. So people are not looking for work. So we have a problem with people who are just trapped in welfare. Meanwhile, back in the massive federal government, uh, Joe Biden announced his administration that they're going to dismantle. This is how they say this. This is covered in Politico. It's time to dismantle America's residential caste system. 
Well, that sounds good, right? I mean, who wants a caste system in America, right? A caste system, it's the term that refers to the, the, uh, the, the Indian system where wherever you were born, you couldn't get out of that system. You were the, you know, the uh, untouchables was the bottom and then sort of uh, uh, working stiffs and lower middle class. And then, the, 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 you know, the, the, that's a caste system. Nobody likes that. It's discriminatory. It's not, it doesn't allow that sort of American moving up from your bootstraps, except how they characterize it is a lie. What they're saying is they're going to force neighborhoods in the suburbs that have zoned their neighborhoods a certain way. For example, where I live, we have no um, public sewer. Everybody has to be on a septic. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means that you can't have houses on top of each other because you have to have a septic field. And it's a way to say we want a more, uh, the word I always love using it, bucolic. We want a a more, uh, you know, a a more um, green environment. You want more grass in between houses and all. Well, what the Biden administration is doing is what the Obama administration did, which is says, we don't care what your preference was when you went and bought a house in an area that was zoned for the things you wanted. You know, maybe you wanted to live in a high rise that you could walk to all the restaurants. Well, that's where you pick. Maybe you wanted to live out in the suburbs where you had an acre or half an acre where you lived and you had green in between. Well, no, no. What Obama said, and Biden is now going back to it, and Trump fought against it was we, the federal government, are going to come all the way down into your neighborhood and tell you how you must live. You see, you know, by the way, I want to talk more about this, but I want to say the other thing we got watching, uh, President Biden is going to meet with Manchin and Cinema about the massive spending bill. While we're all distracted by uh, whatever shiny object, they're going to talk. They're talking about maybe having a carve out on the filibuster in the U.S. Congress so that they can pass a voting rights bill, which would be a federalizing of the elections so that we have more mail in ballots, more irregularities, more uncertainty, more lack of confidence. You get my point when you have a federal government government that's so big and so massive and so uh, uh, strong, powerful, you're going to have lots of mischief. And so back to my point here, we know, we now know the Biden administration, and this article talks about how, oh, it's oh, it's just so wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. We're going to go in and you're not allowed to have a preference in your community. And how do they do this? They do this with the old, uh, they do this with the old, um, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 if they can't get you with the hammer, you know, they get you with the sweetener, right? So they're, they're looking at this and they're saying, well, you get federal money for XYZ PDQ in your county. And if you don't change your zoning laws, you don't change and adjust to what we're talking about, then we are going to have to take your money away or freeze it or hold it back. And so people are like oh, in these counties or in these small communities are like, well, we better think about adjusting. And here's the sickness of it. They try to make it into a race question. They try to say this is about race. We've got, we've got to let, make it so that we can put in low-income housing in your neighborhood wherever you live. Now, again, if, if, I don't think that low-income housing is efficient at all when the government does it. I think it's much more. it would be much more effective to help people get to where they can buy their own homes and they can make their own lives. But be that as it may, what I know for sure is that when people decide where they want to live, and they make a decision on the cost of their house and the schools they're in and the taxes. They just don't th- they don't think to themselves, oh, yeah, but when the new president gets in, he's going to uh, uh, decide to tell us what we must do in our communities. This is the kind of stuff that is happening. And most Americans don't even realize it. In other words, the left has gotten so good at helping the Republicans, helping the so-called conservatives grow government. And then when they get in charge, man, they go for it. Man, they go for it. They don't hold back. 
they say, well, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this to you. We're not even going to we're not even going to hide it. We're not even going to hide that this is designed to make your suburbs. And what Trump said, of course, dramatically is do you want to get Section 8 housing and low income housing in your neighborhood and drive down your, the cost of your homes? Well, that's all true. But more importantly, what's the vision of American life where the federal government is managing down to the zoning? This is not a federalism. This is not a, a federalist kind of vision that our founders had. Good. Keep a military. Keep certain functions for the federal government. But don't get down and manage. If you want to live in Maryland and have Maryland and that county, Montgomery County, decide that they're going to zone X way, fine. Because you can move to Virginia or you can move to West Virginia. Or if you live in Missouri and you're down in the southern part of Missouri and you go, oh, I don't want to go over to Illinois. Illinois has got these rules. I'm going to stay in Missouri or Tennessee, you know, down in so that's what our system is supposed to be. And my, uh, two points about this. One is it's it's federal government bullying us, bullying the American people. And it's a bullying that takes away our freedom and our value and our meaning. And number two, most Americans aren't paying attention. It's happening sort of past us because it's moving too fast. And that should worry everybody. All right, everybody. Listen, thank you for tuning in. Uh, great. Uh, to be together. Great interviews today. And uh, please go to ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for the Daily Wink. Thank you, as always, to our great producer, Noah Dingley, and to Joanna for helping book our guests. And we will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro America Report. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.